apply the brakes. This is the Poetry Slowdown Podcast, presented with joy and vigor by Dr. Barbara Mossberg. Is it written on the heart, the poet not creating, only shining out its light? I sing the answer, yes, in the wind, the aspen singing day and night, the answer, yes, and yes, we hear, our ears attuned to it, we hear, dark halls going down them in the darkness, crying, yes, hearing in the darkness, yes, the everlasting song of us, how amazing to think it ends, important to think it doesn't. Charles Trippi Hearing in the darkness the everlasting song of us from Chuck Trippi's Agencies of Grace, the game of poems, an ancient and emergent national pastime, and Friday Night Lights, Poems to light us in dark days and Friday nights. What if we approached poetry as a stadium event? We'll consider that. And amazing poems that shine in darkness and lift us today for the Poetry Slowdown with Professor Barbara Mossberg, that's me, Dr. B, and our producer, Zappa Johns, and we're going to talk about how we need this lift today, how we need this light in the context of Ralph Waddle Emerson's national recruiting calls for the poet and the relation of American football and politics and poetry and civic consciousness and resilience. We, the people, will dine on plenty of Whitman, Homer, and the lights of Ezra Pound, Mark Strand, Diane Ackerman, Brené Brown, Tolkien, Shakespeare, Robert Frost, Martin Luther King Jr., Plato, a little Dickinson, goes a long way, William Stafford, Leonard Cohen, away lit with Jack Gilbert, Joseph Brodsky, Cahill Gabron, James Wright, William Carlos Williams, Jane Hirschfield, Lucille Clifton, Pablo Neruda, Pierre Joris, Bill Stafford, Pimone Triplett, Mary Oliver, Ander Larson, Virginia Woolf graces us with news on us as readers. We who read poetry are so blessed. And on that subject, let's begin with Agencies of Grace again. Is it written on the heart, the poet not creating, only shining out its light? I sing the answer, yes, in the wind, the aspen singing, day and night, the answer, yes, and yes, we hear, our ears attuned to it, we hear dark halls going down them in the darkness, crying, yes, Hearing in the darkness, yes, the everlasting song of us. How amazing to think it ends. Important to think 
it doesn't. You good listener, slowing down to join me for our poetry slowdown, our Think for Yourself radio. We were produced first by Hal Ginsberg, then Sarah Hughes, and now our producer Zappa Johns, based in the west coast of the Monterey Peninsula. Let us begin on this shining December day. A poem sent by you, poet listeners, after our previous shows on grace, Agencies of Grace by Chuck Trippy. He's the author of Carlo and Sophia, a Blake scholar, a classics philosopher, and a founder of New Jersey's Fallen Scale Poetry Project that promotes local poetry. In a way, I see this concept like the burgeoning farmer's market, where we celebrate community and support who's here, who's with us right now, invested in this place, autochthonous of the soil of the here and now. That voice, in the words of the project, has a timber and resonance. And we think of these days in our country and how we call on each other, how we get together and we share what I know. We share what we each know. The Pollen Scale Poetry Project <clears throat> began as a small press started by Chuck and Barbara Trippy. It exists under the proposition that the timber and resonance and meaning of our local voices ring truest in local ears. In the sounds of the same and the different, the poems along the Walk Hill and the Pollens Gill, the Muscatankong and the Delaware come to us exactly as one, exactly as 10,000, as voices from here. And Poetry Slowdown, the glorious paradox, is expressed by Ralph Waddo Emerson. He calls, and this is in the 1830s, for an urgently needed national poet without whom he felt we would never be a country. We would always be a European wannabe cultural outlier, pathetic imitator. We would always be just little pockets and fragments thinking that we do not have each other's interests at heart. We would never know our native genius. He said, if you go into the deepest, most private, unique part of your own experience and you share that, you will speak for the maid with the pail, the man with the street. In other words, most universally. So the local voice here speaks to and for and of the people. Emerson's idea, I think, was that getting Americans to write poetry was a national priority. So local meant over here, American. And he was so passionate on the topic that he inspired a certain Walter Whitman and Henry Thoreau and Emily Dickinson and John Muir, among others, to take up a pen and sing. Yes, check Trippy's words here, 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 on singing out the answer 
the everlasting song of us. When I read this poem, Agencies of Grace, is it written on the heart, the poet not creating, only shining out its light? I sing the answer, yes, in the wind, the aspen singing, day and night, the answer, yes, and yes, we hear, our ears attuned to it, we hear, dark halls, going down them in the darkness, crying, yes, hearing in the darkness, yes, the everlasting song of us, how amazing to think it ends, important to think it doesn't. Well, doesn't that sound to you, Poetry Slow Down, like the way epic poetry begins? Sing in me, muse, and through me lift that great song once again, Robert Fitzgerald's translation of the Odyssey. Well, what does Walt Whitman say? A New Jersey boy, I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume. I celebrate myself and sing myself. He loafs and invites his soul. He's at ease, observing a sphere of summer grass, my tongue, every atom of my blood formed from the soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same, and their parents the same, I, now 37 years old, in perfect health, begin, hoping to cease not till death. And he actually did continue his whole life writing this poem. He says, I harbor for good or bad, I permit to speak at every hazard, nature without check, with original energy. Well, Walt Whitman is inspired. He's local, he's national, and he is singing. Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and sin. There are millions of sins left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead. You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. And we have heard how Chuck Trippy ends his poem, Yes, the Everlasting Song of Us. How amazing to think it ends. How important to think it doesn't. Whitman says, I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. There was never more inception than there is now, nor any more youth or age than there is now, and will never be any more perfection than there is now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. So Whitman takes up Emerson's call for the poet as local, the self speaking for everyone, and when you read this poem, you believe he does mean everyone, 
so that it is one galactic community of belonging he invokes as poet. Now I will do nothing but listen. To accrue what I hear into this song, to let sounds contribute toward it. I hear bravuras of birds, bustle of growing wheat, gossip of flames, clack of sticks cooking my meals. I hear the sound I love, the sound of the human voice. I hear all the sounds running together, combined, fused, or following. Sounds of the city, sounds out of the city, sounds of the day and night. Talking of young ones, to those that like them. The loud laugh of work people at their meals, the angry bass of disjointed friendship. The faint tones of the sick. The judge with hands tight to the desk, his pallid lips pronouncing a death sentence. Whoa. Well... I hear the violoncello, I hear the key cornet, I hear the chorus, it is a grand opera. Ah, oh, this indeed is music, this suits me. A tenor large and fresh as creation fills me, the orbit flex of his mouth is pouring and filling me full. And Emily Dickinson speaks of herself as the poet singing, chanting. In poem after poem, bind me, I still can sing, chanting to paradise. Why do they shut me out of heaven? Did I sing too loud? Her voice is song, even opera. Though no placard, any placard boast me, nor any know, I know the art I mention easy here. It's full as opera. And Thoreau, his persona as a poet, begins Walden. I do not propose to write an ode to dejection, but to brag as lustily as Chanticleer in the morning, standing on his roost, if only to wake my neighbors up. That's from the title page of Walden, the rooster's morning song to us, waking us up. So Emerson is calling in his project for the poet on this kind of local project Chuck Trippy and his community are doing to support local poets. And Trippy's song begins us with our theme today on this December day of darkness, what shining comes out of it, the idea of singing, of yes, of grace. In Trippy's words, the poet shining out its light. As if the light is in each of us, invoked when we read the poet, and I love this, do you remember that song? This little light of mine, I'm going to make it shine. When we read a poem coming from the light of the poet, that miracle of expression as human beings, that separate, solitary person's light becomes ours too. It literally lights us up. Trippy's poem illustrates, I think, what Ezra Pound wrote. Man reading should be man intensely alive. The book should be a ball of light in one's hand. And this makes me think of Virginia Woolf's. When the day of judgment dawns, and people, great and small, come marching in to receive their heavenly rewards, 
the Almighty will gaze upon the mere bookworms and say to Peter, Look, these need no reward. We have nothing to give them. They have loved reading. Now, poetry, slow down. I know when you first heard Trippy's poem, yes, the everlasting song of us, how amazing to think it ends, important to think it doesn't. I know you were thinking immediately of politics, our national civic life, football. I know Alabama, Ohio, Auburn, Oklahoma, Oregon State, Oregon, UCLA, USC, bands in the darkness, crying, coaches walking away, coaches fired, games won and lost, no one could have predicted, and political battles going on. And these lines, how amazing to think it ends, important to think it doesn't, right? I have personally been reflecting about football and life and poetry these past days, and now that I'm thinking of Emerson's call for a poet as a national project, in today's news, we need a poem. We're never going to be up and running as a country until we have someone to sing to us. And if we consider that we have so many people in our lives who can sing to us, we just have to listen. And the song is in us. Somebody who sings to us in poetry might be the only person who really knows us, us, each of us personally, and us as a country. It's our poets who know us, our poets who are of us and for us and with us. And this Pollenscale Poetry Project idea um, I think that it was anticipated when Emerson wrote The Poet in 1836. We were still pretty new as a political entity. The Constitution ratified 1789. There was less than 50 years, less than one lifetime ago, when he calls for a poet. We were still settling into being a country at all. There was the War of 1812. Most of us know about it because of a song. And <laughs> it goes... In 1814, we took a little trip, along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon, and we took a little beans, and we fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. So the country seemed not only new, but fragile. And it was a poet Emerson conceived to be needed to come to the rescue. I'm thinking of this now. When Friday night, there I was, in a stadium filled to the brim with 58,300 more or less people. The Autzen Stadium in Eugene, Oregon, where it never rains, although it did a little, but there was nary an umbrella in sight, that's not the Oregon way, and people gathered to cheer for their football team in the rivalry between the University of Oregon, Go Ducks, and Oregon State, 
the beavers. I sat there completely overwhelmed with the magnitude of community. There we were, all of us, each of us, gathered in a circle for a common purpose to watch this patch of grass and people running up and down playing with a ball. The pageantry of it, the bands playing, flags waving, the cheering, the cheer, the bonhomie, the camaraderie, the marching, and to feel part of something larger than oneself, part of something belonging to one's community. And I wondered, you know what I'm going to say, poetry, slow down, about poetry. Could we ever gather 60,000 or 90,000 people in a stadium to hear poetry? So I was thinking about the meaning of football, a pleasure uh, today since uh, my teams have had pretty good days recently. In what ways it's like life and in what ways it's like poetry? And what if America, we gathered, oh, 50 or 100,000 of us with millions watching from home and listening to news feeds from reporters online and on the radio to what's going on with poetry. In some ways, football is a lot like poetry. Do you recall William Carlos Williams in To Ask Fidel, that greeny flower, saying, I think you do recall, I quote it every week, my heart rouses, thinking to bring you news that concerns you and concerns many men. It is difficult to find it there and despise poems. Yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Of course, you remember, I quote this every week. It's the theme of our show, Slowing Down, from Simon and Garfunkel's 59th Street Bridge song, Slow Down, You Move Too Fast, You've Got to Make the Morning Last. The idea that slowing down with and for and by poetry allows us, as in yoga, to breathe differently, feel conscious, and honor the light in us, in each other, that men die miserably every day because of the lack of the kind of news we get in a poem. And we all know how we're feeling by looking at our daily news feeds. Yet, William says it's difficult, and poems are despised. And I was thinking about football, which to me is equally difficult. Like poetry, when you're watching a football game, so much is going on, And you have to know a lot, a lot about football to understand and interpret what is happening before your eyes. Me, I literally can be watching the field one minute. It's all neat and organized. The two teams lined up facing each other. I get this. And I get the idea that each is going to be taking the ball to one end to score. That is clear. But as soon as the ball is kicked or hiked, and they scatter all around. I don't know where to look. I lose the ball completely, and everything gets tangled up. The only time I understand what's happening in a play is if a player takes the ball and runs with it. I get that, and I get very excited. But after all these years, I didn't even know that there were different kinds of teams depending on the play. (laughs) 
in these guys to do the job. These to do that. Football is extremely complicated to play, to understand, to prepare for. And if you know someone who knows football, consider having that person take over the community projects and possibly national politics because that person is smart and dedicated and patient, data-driven. So, poetry. It may be that when, go with me here, poetry, slow down, the poem appears on the page, A, we don't know not only what's going to happen, but actually what's happening. I'm not just talking about Wallace Stevens. All kinds of things are going on at once in lines and then lines broken up and metrics and precision and organization, clusters of motion with movement, rhythm, and maybe the meaning of the poem is the ball. But you are so helped with a poem if you know about the rules of poetry, so that when you see three quatrains rhyming every other line with iambic pentameter, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-sha, and a rhyming couplet at the end, you know you're in a sonnet. And you have a whole history of sonnets to reflect back on, what's been done with sonnets, and you can see what new things are going on in this sonnet, what's happening with the rhyme, how the imagery is developed. If there is no rhyme, or if it's internal, or there's no former structure, and there's enjambment, where the flow of rhetorical thought ends in the middle of one line and continues on to the next, changing the velocity and stress of what is being said, well, you would know this if you knew all kinds of poetry. And it occurred to me that most of us require and appreciate what is called color. The announcers during a game, beforehand, during, and afterwards, telling us what we are seeing as we see it, what we have just seen, what it all means. There are instant replays now, slow-mo. Yes, we slow it down and see it again and again. The intricacies, the amazing way the bodies move and sometimes the anguish when they are still before they get up. How they fly, float, dance, arc. And we have our literary critics writing as beautifully and brilliantly on the poetry as the poetry itself. Lyrical, precise, nuanced, brains on opera. Well, what if we had this as poetry is read, commenting on what is being achieved, comparing it to what the poet did before, and putting it into context of poetic history, what is special and what can be understood in this poem. All right, Pablo, that's a signature down-to-earth metaphor we see here. She's playing with fire. Ha ha, you're right, Billy. Oh, look, this image is exploding. She's done this before. She loved it in Ruth Stone. Yeah, she got that metaphor from her reading of Merton. He was reading Whitman. 
Wait, now look what's happened. She's breaking free. She broke the lineup. Maybe there are similarities as poets consider the read option. What to do with the ball? Moving the chains of the metaphor down the field toward the goal and final kick. The idea of the poem that they want to move forward and the game itself could be the poem. Both teams in a kind of equilibrium, attention, a game whose meaning is that it was played. Each team tried to move the ball to score a touchdown, and a touchdown in a poem might be that moment of insight that is reached, that moment of recognition, a way of seeing something, a sense of momentousness about our lives, about what is possible to think. What if we had color, Whitman and Pinsky, Collins and Ruckheiser, Jack Gilbert and Jean Valentine calling the play by play. And what about coaches? Surely we need an offensive line coach, a defensive line coach, aka editors and fellow readers, teachers and mentors. We need assistants and water and great outfits and cheerleaders and music and a muse calling the plays, the big plays, and knowing when to put. What if Athena is on the field, as in the Iliad, spreading mist around to confuse people while she aids and advises the hero poet only some of the gods of immortality want to succeed? Who is Athena, and what role is the publisher, the reviewer, and the last-minute scoring? Oregon, that Friday night, lost the ball at the end and Oregon State scored with only a minute and a half left to go. But instead of despairing and resigning themselves to fate, the players played as if every single moment counted. And with only 29 seconds left to go, Oregon scored number eight, Mariota, to number one. Huh. And what happened with Auburn? Auburn scoring in the last second and turning around the game into a victory. Think of what Shakespeare does in Sonnet 73. That time of year in me thou mayest behold. He's been whining every which way about growing old and unattractive to his mate. He's a shivering, quivering mess. He's a tree the birds have left, bare, ruined. He's the dying embers of a fire. He's the light going out at the end of the day. Oh, sad, sad, all is lost. And then, two lines left. He turns it around, flips it. So, if there's less time, you should love me all the more. Gotcha, score. And what if it is the contest itself, the effort to put oneself out there in this coordinated way. No. What if the player's skills and positions are elements of the process of meaning, and now we call upon our ability to run the ball, now to pass, now to put, now how to line up the line, the imagery, your backfield? What if it were the rhymes and the non-rhymers, the prose poets versus the formalists, what if it were one city's poets versus another's, the Portland rhymers, the Ithaca iambics, the Cleveland metaphors, and the whole idea is the celebration of the art of poetry itself. 
Sitting in the stadium, I kept thinking, what if we had public gatherings like this for poetry on the scale of national importance, as if it mattered utterly? If the banner over the newspaper masthead and headline, Gary Snyder scores with new poem on earth, or Mary Oliver takes us to our knees to see a grasshopper, or Mark Doty eyes a green-shelled crab. Now, there are poetry slams where poets compete and get Olympic-like judging. I did this a few weeks ago at Tanami Books in Eugene, Oregon with my uh, students, Poetry and You, what fun. But what is at stake in a national consciousness of poetry as if there is no end? Not really. There is always another game, another season, another chance to win the day, to have our say, and to believe how it matters. When we come back after our break, we're going to hear it for poetry that sings the light out of darkness, poetry that will make us live enthralled, rapt, eager, and awake. In other words, slowed down. I'm Professor Barbara Mossberg with our Poetry Slowdown podcast at barbaramossberg.com. said someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold, then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know, of love's austere and lonely offices? Robert Hyden. Welcome back to our Poetry Slowdown. You're joining me, Professor Barbara Mossberg, and we're talking football and poetry and our nation and dark and light and singing of the poet this December day, this winter Sunday of ours, in which Haydn has found the love, thinking back on darkness in his childhood. And I think of what Plato wrote, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. It's Plato. And Shakespeare talks about the light in us as one of love, as when Martin Luther King says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. This idea of love as light in Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare writes, When he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine 
that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. And Pablo Neruda illuminating love as light and darkness, and this is a hot poem for a cold winter day. Carnal apple, woman feel filled burning moon, dark smell of seaweed, crush of mud and light, what secret knowledge is clasped between your pillars? What primal night does man touch with his senses? I, love is a journey through waters and stars, through suffocating air, sharp tempests of grain. Love is a war of lightning and two bodies ruined by a single sweetness. Kiss by kiss, I cover your tiny infinity your margins, your rivers, your diminutive villages, and a genital fire transformed by delight slips through the narrow channels of blood to precipitate a nocturnal carnation to be and be nothing but light in the dark. Pablo Neruda. Diane Ackerman this passionate writer of the senses and our natural world writes, When I set a glass prism on a windowsill and allow the flood, sun to flood through it, a spectrum of colors dances on the floor. What we call white is a rainbow of colored rays packed into a small space. The prism sets them free. Love is the white light of emotion. Diane Ackerman natural history of love. Mary Oliver, when I am among trees, I think this is the idea of the light inside us, poets sing. And here's the poem. <clears throat> when I am among the trees by Mary Oliver. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me, and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself, in which I have goodness and discernment, and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, Stay a while. The light flows from their branches, and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. What is Shining in our world in dark days and cold, we can find Mary Oliver, her poem about trees, in our poetry slowdown. I'm your host, Professor Barbara Mossberg, in our show today, inspired by our listener's poem, inspired by our show on grace, Chuck Trippy's Agencies of Grace, with poets singing the light in them. Here is Jack Gilbert, who won the Yale Younger Poet Prize early on, was the darling of Vogue, a culture-making 
him famous. He turned his back on fame. He went to live in Europe, Greece, San Francisco, back to Europe, back to San Francisco, in an old-style way, way slowed down. Thinking of this question of out of the darkness that is a knowing or knowing, a poet writes words that themselves are light. Gilbert tells us, The monks petition to live the harder way, in pits dug farther up the mountain, but only the favored ones are permitted that scraped life. The syrup water and cakes the abbot served me were far too sweet, a simple misunderstanding of pleasure because of inexperience. I pull water up hand over hand from thirty feet of stone. My kerosene lamp burns a mineral light. The mind in its fierceness lives here in silence. I dream of women and hunger in my valley for what can be made of granite. Like the sun hammering this earth into pomegranates and grapes. Dryness giving way to the smell of basil at night. Otherwise, the stone feeds on stone, is reborn as rock, and the heart wanes. Athena's owl calling into the barrenness and nothing answering. And then he asks, What if Orpheus, confident in the hard-found mastery, should go down into hell, out of the clean light down? And then, surrounded by the closing beasts and readying his lyre, should notice suddenly they had no ears. And it is Cahil Gibran who brings this quality of loving and giving light back to the gift of the poet Mr. Chuck Trippy was talking about. The poet as the agency of grace, singing the light in us. I'm quoting, Oftentimes we call life bitter names, but only when we ourselves are bitter and dark, and when we deem her empty and unprofitable, but only when the soul goes wandering in desolate places and the heart is drunken with overmindness of self. Life is deep and high and distant, and though only your vast vision can reach even her feet, yet she is near. And though only the breath of your breath reaches her heart, the shadow of your shadow crosses her face, and the echo of your faintest cry becomes a spring and an autumn in her breast. And life is veiled and hidden, even as your greater self is hidden and veiled. Yet, when life speaks, all the winds become words. And when she speaks again, the smiles upon your lips and the tears in your eyes turn also into words. When she sings, the deaf hear and are held. And when she comes walking, the sightless behold her and are amazed and follow her in wonder and astonishment. That's Cahil Gibran, the Garden of the Prophet. And Robert Frost, we think of him as a New Englander, of course, but he was born in San Francisco, was named for a Southern Civil War hero, Robert E. Lee. He writes of the light coming out of darkness and of himself as one who is, in his words, acquainted with the night and its darkness. He writes, this is Robert Frost, I have been when acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. Look again. Brodsky suggests it. Come in. 
the title poem to a collection that was printed in a special armed services collection for U.S. soldiers. In the poem, a man approaches the edge of the woods. He can hear somewhere in the trees the singing of a thrush, but the woods are shadowed, the bird is hidden. Too dark in the woods for a bird by slight of wing to better its perch for the night, though it still could sing. Far in the pillar dark, the poem continues, thrush music went, almost like a call to come in to the dark and lament. But the poet, who is out for stars, refuses. I would not come in, he says. I meant not even if asked, and I hadn't been. So part of him wants to be there to make a meal of his own dreadful apprehension. The poet has dared himself to the edge of the woods, the same woods that are lovely, dark, and deep. And once there, shielding himself from his own insights. And Joseph Brodsky says, The twenty lines of the poem constitute the title's translation, and in this translation, I'm afraid, the expression come in means die. Right? So Mark Strand, in The Coming of Light, writes, Even this late it happens, the coming of love, the coming of light. You wake, and the candles are lit as if by themselves. Stars gather. Dreams pour into your pillows, sending up warm bouquets of air. Even this late, the bones of the body shine, and tomorrow's dust flares into breath. Owning, that's Mark Strand, and Brene Brown. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy. The experiences that make us the most vulnerable only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. Brene Brown and J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. Moonlight drowns out all but the brightest stars. Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice. How far that little candle throws his beam so shines a good deed in a weary world. Wonderful, marvelous, you should care for me. Then we have Shel Silverstein, Turn on the Dark, I'm Afraid of the Light. Well, Jack Gilbert is going to write the forgotten dialect of the heart. How astonishing it is that language can almost mean, and frightening that it does not quite. Love, we say. God, we say. Rome and Michiko, we write, and the words get it all wrong. We say bread, and it means according to which nation. French has no word for home, and we have no word for strict pleasure. A people in northern India is dying out because their ancient tongue has no words for endearment. I dream of lost vocabularies that might express some of what we no longer can. Maybe the Etruscan texts would finally explain why the couples on their tombs are smiling, and maybe not. When the thousands of mysterious Sumerian tablets were translated, they seem to be business records. But what if they are poems or psalms? 
My joy is the same as twelve Ethiopian goats standing silent in the morning light. O Lord, thou art slabs of salt and ingots of copper, as grand as ripe barley lithe under the wind's labor. Her breasts are six white oxen loaded with bolts of long-fibred Egyptian cotton. My love is a hundred pitchers of honey. Shiploads of thua are what my body wants to say to your body. Giraffes are this desire of the dark. Perhaps the spiral Minoan script is not language but a map. What we feel most has no name but amber, archers, cinnamon, horses, and birds. And in a really important poem for today's news, a brief for the defense. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our intention, intention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. Jack Gilbert I'm also thinking of James Wright today and how poets bring light out of darkness, the light inside them. You know how I love this poem where he is lying in a hammock where he finds what is shining in the day, in the moment, and perhaps in that way, changes and saves his life, saves the day, literally. It's late afternoon, and all he can see really is the manure on the ground. But look what he sees, the poet's eye. Lying in a hammock at William Deppie's farm in Pine Island, Minnesota, by James Wright. Over my head I see the bronze butterfly, asleep on the black trunk blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back. As the evening darkens and comes on, a chicken hawk floats over looking for home. I've wasted my life. James Wright. 
And so he leaves us here in this ending for sure, but its meaning is an ending of when kind of life, when kind of light, and the beginning of another, the light of knowledge, of appreciation and seeing that expose what is shining, what William Carlos Williams sees in his so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Such a simple world is the poet's gift to us, illuminating what matters. And so it does not surprise me on our show on darkness and light to find a poem by Wright on this specific topic. It's a prose poem he wrote in Verona, Italy, where some would call it self-exile. But we might say he had found a home, a place in which he was grounded, and it's called The Secret of Light by James Wright. I am sitting contented and alone in a little park near the Palazzo Scagliere in Verona, glimpsing the mists of early autumn as they shift and fade among the pines and city battlements on the hills above the river Adige. The river has recovered from this morning's rainfall. It is now restoring to its shapely body its own secret light, a color of faintly cloudy green and pearl. Directly in front of my bench, perhaps thirty yards away from me, there is a startling woman. Her hair is black as the inmost secret of light in a perfectly cut diamond, a perilous black, a secret light that must have been studied for many years before the anxious and disciplined craftsman could achieve the necessary balance between courage and skill to stroke the strange stone and take the one chance he would ever have to bring that secret to light. While I was trying to compose the preceding sentence, the woman rose from her park bench and walked away. I am afraid her secret might never come to light in my lifetime, but my lifetime is not the only one. I will never see her again. I hope she brings some other man's secret face to light as somebody brought mine. I'm startled to discover that I'm not afraid. I am free to give a blessing out of my silence into that woman's black hair. I trust her to go on living. I believe in her black hair, her diamond that is still asleep. I would close my eyes to daydream about her, but those silent companions who watch over me from the insides of my eyelids are too brilliant for me to meet face to face. The very emptiness of the park bench in front of mine is what makes me happy. Somewhere else in Verona at just this moment, a woman is sitting or walking or standing still upright. Surely two careful and accurate hands, total strangers to me, measure the invisible idea of the secret vein in her hair. They're waiting patiently until they know what they alone can ever know, that when her life will pause in mid-flight for a split second. The hands will touch her black hair very gently. A wind off the river will flutter past her. She will turn around, smile a welcome, and place a flawless and fully formed Italian daybreak into the hands. I don't have any idea what his face will look like. The light still hidden inside his body is no business of mine. I'm happy enough to sit in this park alone now. I turn my own face toward the river. A little wind flutters off the water, brushes past me, and returns. It is all right with me to know that my life is only one life. I feel like the light of the river Adige. By this time, we are both an open secret. James Wright, Verona. And this 
Poetry Slowed Down made me want to share today in honor of Mr. Chuck Trippy's Present of Grace, a poet singing light as if light is a song, and maybe Einstein would agree with this idea, William Blake's take on light. He whose face gives no light shall never become a star. Well, here's Ander Monson, detail of my sort of light. Now I know that everything is a body, so even the snow and the sand and the blood rivered down in the snow and snowed on again so it's buried is a body. All things are bodies and photos, detail of the left side of a breast and the arms pit, detail of the sled slumbered under by the storm's leavings, detail of my sort of so early half-lit eyelid light that bodies are near to invisible and touches no longer the sole way of knowing, and outline is all that there is. Detail of your body as it does its morning leaving thing. Detail of what light there is on your skin. Detail of landscape of let me in please and coffee, warm when the weather's action on this body is less than ideal. Landscape with pear. Landscape with weather and part of a breast in the frame. Jane Hirschfield, First Light Edging Cirrus. Ten to the twenty-fifth molecules are enough to call wood thresher apple. A hummingbird fewer, a wristwatch, ten to the twenty-fourth. An alphabet's molecules, tasting of honey, iron, and salt, cannot be counted. As some strings, untouched, sound when a near one is speaking, as it was when love slipped inside us. It looked out face to face in every direction. Then it was inside the tree. The rock, the cloud. Jane Hirschfield, Pomone Triplet, Past Light. I thought myself, age 13, rabid for facts and trying to have a mind for what each light was. This I knew. Arrivals of gaseous crack-ups, wholly unlike us and not pinpricks, nor quaint connect-the-dots, nor tiny stabs of will. Sky zenith. Lyra the Great, the small bear, hopes rose. It was before the boys and the window escapes, before breakups seeped into the house like bad water. I love stories of staying in place. In the one about the ancient astronomer on the day of eclipse, after he gazed his naked sight away, he thought he saw the sun giving birth to itself and scrawled half-blind in a notebook, as if wood fought back to eat the fire. Meanwhile, our lawn sparked with mother's rake, tines upraised, sound of door slam and squabble inside, squeal of brakes rounding out the drive, and if I wanted one clean, one lesser loyalty, wishing so hard on that old onlooker, I could see him at full kneel, in dirt unflinching. The words arcing slowly up, saying, Burn me all to a star, O fathers. I understood nothing of their pain. Altars of Light, Pierre Joris. If the light is the soul, then soul is what's all around me. It is you. It is around you, too. It is you. The darkness is inside me. The opaqueness of organs folded upon organs. To make light in the house of the body. Thus to bring the outside in, the impossible job, and the only place to become the skin, the border, the in-between, where dark meets light where I meets you. In the house of world, the many darknesses are surrounded by light. To see the one, 
we need the other. It cuts both ways. Light on light is blind. Dark on dark is blind. Light through dark is not. Dark through light is movement. Dark through light becomes, is becoming, to move through. Light is becoming, is all we can know. William Stafford said, Poetry is talk with some luck in it. You just invite yourself to be lucky when you talk or write. Well, that's a way to let in light, let in luck, let in a miracle of turnaround. So, in a weekend in which we've just been celebrating Thanksgiving, conceived as a natural ritual by Henry David Thoreau based on his understanding of native cleansing and gratitude feast rituals, I'm filled with gratitude today for our producer, Zappa Johns, who produces our podcast at barbaramossberg.com, where you can get all our shows at a click, and our Poetry Slowdown team, and Chuck Trippy for his poem, Agencies of Grace, which inspired our whole show, Poets Singing Light. Thank you, philosopher Charles, speaking on Blake this week. And speaking of speaking about coming events, it's almost Emily Dickinson's birthday. This is her month, her week. It's always her year. We're going to celebrate her on her show next week. Her fame for talking about light. She talked about the lunacy of light, a certain slant of light on winter afternoons like now. And we're going to hear, hear, hear. We're going to pronounce her name as she hoped. I am sure if we gathered every person who loves Emily Dickinson's poetry, we could fill a stadium for sure. She is a wide receiver. As she says in her poem, I dwell in possibility. For occupation this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Thank you for my team poetry, I, your time, your light, and me, listeners of our poetry slowdown. I'm your professor, Barbara Mossberg, singing the muse in these darkest days of the year, hearing the news in poetry. Our light shines from Friday Night Lights. Do you remember anyone? Full hearts, clear eyes, can't lose. Ah, oh, we need that spirit. We need that poetry. Words that can inspire bravery. Words we need in darkness. Light itself. I got no deeds to do, no promises to keep. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep. Let the morning time drop all its petals on me. Life, I love you. All is groovy. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-